0: One of the most understandable sentiments expressed both inside and outside the church is, if only God would make everything right. It's the cry of the sick, it's the cry of the broken, the disappointed, the lonely, the betrayed, the mistreated. God's apparent inaction against suffering is one of the reasons people give for rejecting him altogether. I can't believe in a God that allows so much suffering. Well, this morning we'll see Joel take this problem of evil head on. Many epic stories and movies present the same tension between good and evil, don't they? And evil often seems to have the upper hand. Um, Star Wars, for example, they seem better at pooling their resources. They seem to have the sharper, more ruthless strategy. Uh, The final book in the Narnia series is called The Last Battle. And since C.S. Lewis was reflecting the Bible story, it's not surprising. God, too, will make everything right on his day, and it will come via a last battle. Joel presents the last battle hand-in-hand with his major theme, the day of the Lord. And this phrase, the day of the Lord, occurs just 13 times across all of the Old Testament prophets. But in Joel's three fairly short chapters, the weighty phrase occurs five times. And in addition to Joel using that precise wording, he also speaks of those days and at that time and that day. It's a bit hard to pin down when Joel was written and what precise um, historical context, perhaps because it's meant to span ages. But the day of the Lord, is it a good day or a bad day? Is it terrifying or is it wonderful? Well, that depends entirely upon whose side you're on. And so picking up from the end of Joel chapter 2, point 1, who surrenders to God wins. That's the second half of chapter 2. And then chapter 3 shows us who fights, God loses. Who surrenders wins. Who fights, loses. If you turn back to chapters 1 to 2, you you might recall from two weeks ago, uh, God warned of destruction and then said in chapter 2 verse 13 as one example, rend your heart, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate Israel, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Like a tender-hearted parent with a wayward child, true repentance will be met with the open arms of forgiving restoration. That is what God is like. His nature makes him so inclined to forgive. He becomes wonderfully protective, we read as we go on, Jealous even for his children's welfare, verse 18. Having pity on his people, he'll provide for them, verse 19. As their king, he'll protect ancient Israel by removing invaders from their land, verse 20. There's lots of R words that emerge in Joel with the day of the Lord. With repentance, he relents. And then there are promises of restoration and revitalization. And in chapter 3, a terrible reckoning. Notice here in chapter 2, 19 to 20, God restores what the locusts and the raiding armies took away in chapters 1 to 2, and he reverses the judgment consequences of Moses' law that they'd been breaking ever since they received the law. Verse 19, the Lord replied to them, I'm sending you grain, new wine and olive oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. There are promises like that to Israel that seem to transcend local circumstances. Never again will I make you an object of scorn. Something eternal is underway. And it continues in verses 21 to 27. And I just pick up a few verses. Surely he has done great things. Do not be afraid, land of Judah. Be glad and rejoice. Surely the Lord has done great things. Do not be afraid you wild animals restoration beyond humanity into animal kingdom for the pastures in the wilderness are becoming green like eden the trees are bearing their fruit the fig tree and the vine yield their riches be glad people of zion rejoice in the lord your god the end of revelation the end of the bible of course finishing that picture of zion and the restored people of god with him that last phrase there in verse 23 in the Lord your God. If we pause there, Joel's name, Joel or Yoel or Yahweh, means the Lord, the Lord is God. And so a huge part of the blessing picture is that they have the Lord as their God. The Lord is God. As we Christians know, the Lord himself is our greatest blessing. As in verse 26, you will have plenty to eat until you are full And you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Yes, God restores the physical blessings to those who surrender, who offer their allegiance to the Lord. But the blessings God hints at here in Joel for the new age is being included here too. Humanity 2.0 in which God assures us There will be no more suffering or pain or death. As we go through the Bible, we get more hints of this restoration and this new humanity. You consider Jesus' miracles, for example, designed to give a foretaste that fixes this brokenness into something that's healed in the coming age, when all sickness and death and evil has passed away. Just little tastes through the miracles of what Jesus will do ultimately. We get a taste too in in the book of Acts and the church age that we live in now when God's spirit will fill forgiven, sinful hearts like ours. We who are divinely inspirited to live as new creatures, as citizens of heaven. Joel hints of these things coming in the centuries ahead. Um, We'll see soon the Holy Spirit, but here in verse 27, with Jesus coming I am in Israel, takes on a wonderful new level of meaning. Then you will know that I am in Israel. The phrase Jesus would often use of himself, I am. That I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. And then again in verse 28, Joel foresees a time when all of God's people, not just the prophets, and in Moses' day, it was, if only all of Israel had the spirit that the prophets had. One day, if only. Well, that time is foretold in verse 28, a a verse that is picked up in Acts chapter 2 at the Pentecost to say it's been fulfilled then. Verse 28 And afterwards, in Joel's future, but in the church's past and present, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions, even on my servants, both men and women. I will pour out my spirit in those days. The day of the Lord is partially fulfilled with Jesus' coming, but the day becomes the days, multiple days of his death and resurrection, of his spirit-filled church, of that climactic end, ultimately the day of days, that great and dreadful day, verse 31, the day of the Lord, when he comes to judge the living and the dead. We're in the last days, ahead of Christ's second coming, the return of the King, the last battle, the day of the Lord. The church then can be thought of as spirit-filled evacuees from an infected, decaying world. Notice the survivor language of verse 32. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be deliverance, as the Lord had said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. We shouldn't be surprised that society is large and the church is relatively small. Being saved, some, some will be delivered. There will be survivors. But God is still doing his saving work. He's still calling people into his kingdom. And that's why aged care ministry matters. That's why community outreach like K-Central and Carol's Tonight matter. It's why kids' ministry matters and compassion ministry, why we're ready to sacrifice all kinds of preferences for gospel ambitions. Tens of thousands of people live around us in darkness, but God is calling people to salvation. And his primary means of doing that is churches like ours. A flood is coming. The dark clouds and first drops are falling, but there's an ark, a church, and our doors are still open. We call out surrender to God in order to have the coming Eden that He promises. Because on the other side of the coin, point two, who fights God loses. Who fights loses. After reading Joel. If you then go and read the book of Revelation again, you'll notice that Joel's horror language, his apocalyptic language of locusts and the day of the Lord, those local victories of Israel become cosmic, international, a a great battle with all of God's enemies, physical and spiritual. Look with me at verses 1 to 3 of chapter 3, where battle lines between Creator and all nations now are drawn. In those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Now it seems the Valley of Jehoshaphat was not a literal place name, but rather the, the name means the Lord Judges or the Lord of Judgment. And so it's quite a chilling description, isn't it, of gathering people to the, the Lord Judges. The Lord will gather the nations for battle, but sadly for them, even the place name tells us he is fully in control of the battle conditions, that they don't stand a chance. Who dares take him on will take him on. The terrible mismatch of power brings to mind other war situations. You might think of soldiers with single-shot rifles and bayonets charging towards new machine gun technology. Or Japan resisting calls to surrender ahead of bombs with matchless power ready to fall upon their cities. Who surrenders to this gracious God wins, and who fights this just God loses. The Lord takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, as the prophet Ezekiel says, but the warnings of the prophets and of Jesus and of John in Revelation are meant to offend our sensibilities and upset us because the reality of war with God is far worse than the warnings. Why doesn't God just end the suffering? It's the cry of those who are suffering. It's the cry of the world. We need to be careful not to say it from our director's chair. And we need to think carefully, I think, before thinking God can end all the suffering without harming anyone, myself included. Make the world right as though the procedure should be simple and painless. Recently, I rallied the bravery to have a go at fixing our washing machine. It was leaking over our laundry floor for some weeks, just drip, drip, drip. I pulled it apart and I watched videos and the calm technician on the YouTube video said, this is an easy fix. It only takes about 20 minutes. Well, I ordered the part I thought was faulty. I pulled the thing apart. I wrestled and heaved. And I tried really hard not to swear. And after two and a half hours, that simple 20-minute repair was done. I gave myself a seven out of ten chances that I would be able to do it in however many hours. But it worked. And a tiny piece of metal was the culprit, a little pin, but serious enough to have me pull the whole machine apart, virtually the front of it, and keep me occupied for a morning. Now, when an atheist or a Muslim or a Christian or whoever else, calls upon God to make everything right, the enormity of the problem, the enormity of the fix, well, it really should be recognised. A tiny cavity in a tooth might require a drill and specialist intervention and hundreds of dollars to fix. An infection can require amputation. A little melanoma might require a scalpel and painful skin graft. If Fixing a washing machine is trickier than I expect. Is it at all reasonable to expect a painless treatment for sin, for evil that entangles everything in our world, a disease that permeates everything with its consequences, including every human mind, heart and will? How could God fix everything? How could God sweep away sin without sweeping away me and you at the same time? People asking God to fix everything are asking for far more than they realise. They are calling for a wholesale spiritual, physical, moral excision. Everything amputated, if that were possible, to replace everything old with something new. We would need a global cleansing. Sinful hearts are our world's problem. The justice of God's judgment is only hinted at here, but a coming trial implies that all that happens will be fair. In verses 2 and 3 there. There I will put them on trial for what they did to my inheritance, my people Israel, because they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land. They cast lots for my people and traded boys for prostitutes. They sold girls for wine to drink. And then in verses 4 to 8, the just, fearsome judge raises disarming questions and charges the nations. You have done this, therefore I will do this. Notice their human rebellion sounds pathetic. He asks the wicked cities, now what have you got against me, Tyre and Sidon, and all you regions of Philistia? Famously immoral places. We might say in our day, Las Vegas, what have you got against me, Las Vegas? Why do you tell me that I need to do things differently? amsterdam or bangkok kings cross sydney and countless other places are you repaying me for something i have done with your rebellion if you are repaying me back verse 4 i will swiftly and speedily return on your own heads what you have done and then in verses 9 to 13 the last battle invitation the terms are drawn up you who choose to fight me still it's time And Psalm 2 expresses this in a similar way. The kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed one. As the Psalm 2 song puts it, you kings be wise, you rulers hear the Lord's decree. He sees, he knows, he'll judge in fearsome majesty. It happened with Jesus at Calvary and every person is still choosing sides. Am I on the Lord's side or not? All need to know that life is a spiritual choice. That there are two types of people in the world, not the good and the bad, but those who surrender, those who acknowledge their creator and those who actively or passively reject his right to rule their lives. Respect for the creator is the mark of the civil. Respect for the creator is the mark of the civil. Babel, Babylon, Rome, Oxford, Yale, Harvard, Apple, artificial intelligence we have our towers of self-determination right and wrong in our culture is what I say it is not anyone above me to such humanistic hubris which hurts our broken society much more than it helps us God will one day bring it all to final confrontation verse 9 proclaim this among the nations prepare for war that's, that's a word you don't want to hear from God if you're not on his side. Rouse the warriors. Let all the fighting men draw near and attack. It's pathetic. Yes, beat your plow, plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weakling say, I am strong. Come quickly, all you nations from every side and assemble there. Bring down your warriors, Lord. Let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat, the Lord judges. For there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, trample the grapes, for the winepress is full and the vats overflow. So great is their wickedness. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon will be darkened and the stars no longer shine a very different way of looking at the world, isn't it? The valley of decision. And where does it all end? We see in the book of Revelation and from verse 16, the first half, how it ends as creation began. It ends with God completely unfreatened. It ends with his voice. It ends with a word. Verse 16, the Lord will roar from Zion. And ESV utters his voice, or thunders from Jerusalem. The earth and the heavens will tremble. Hear his voice, see his word made flesh. Hear and behold this risen conquering king. When it comes to our gracious and just God, who surrenders wins, who fights surely loses. The Lord will finally crush all human and spiritual opposition. The one who will do that then is the same Lord who saves, loves, provides refuge to all who call on him now. See from the second half of verse 16. But the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. You know, when I'm visiting um, people in palliative care, I'll often read Psalm 23. If you can say, the Lord is my shepherd, verse 1, then you can also say, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The Lord is my shepherd, therefore all is well with me forever. It may not appear in our leafy suburbs that our Society is spiritually militarized against God. But to stubbornly cling to idols and to say evil is good and good is evil, as our society is forever doing, well, God is being spurned in our leafy suburbs. It's hard to sense this spiritual battle as you stroll around the aisles listening to the music at IGA or Harris Farm. But it's the lens God gives the church to warn the world he loves. It may even be very hard for us to believe that this is truly coming. But Jesus certainly took it very seriously. And so did the apostles. People want God to fix the world, but the world's greatest problem is theological. The rejection of the transcendent. The rejection of the Lord, who is God. In the last prophet we read, Hosea, idolatry is spiritual adultery. In Joel, idolatry is battlefield madness, a senseless rage against ultimate power. In Hosea, we were called to choose God over faithlessness. In Joel, we are called to choose God over destruction. The great battle, the day of the Lord, will come to every soul, the living and the dead. The pure, awesome presence of God will expose and condemn every human not sheltered, by the righteousness of christ and his cross the best time to surrender friends is not yesterday or if not yesterday is today and please talk to me or a friend after church if you know you need to take that step but what does this mean for a church finally well jesus loves you is a nice message and it's the church, it's the message the world often hears from the church But for Jesus' love to mean anything, to make any logical difference, for the gospel to have any traction in a busy society, overwhelmed with messages, the serious need for Jesus' love also has to be shared. When I hear older Christians or someone like Billy Graham share the gospel, sometimes it strikes me that it sounds old school, a generation or two above me. Not that the language is old, but the plainness of the warning is confronting. And I'm concerned we're so afraid in our time of offending people that the offence of the gospel isn't shared. And so the gospel isn't adequately heard. A nice message. I have no problem with Christianity. I just have no time for it. We love people by being transparent with them and transparent Christian conversations with friends should sometimes include grave tones to have Joel's and Jesus' worried look in our eyes as we speak with them. People will sense that we're deeply concerned for them when we are deeply concerned for them. If we're not, they won't. No warnings, no relevance. Many people don't have well-considered reasons for keeping God out. Irrelevance may well be the number one thing. I'm not anti-God or anti-church, I just don't need them. And we must then say, oh, but you do. And here's why. When the church is too soft and compromised to be effective, God is so kind, he sometimes does the saving anyway. One of my friends became a Christian um, at this time of year when watching one of those ancient animations of christmas nativity scene little characters walking around the screen i think they still appear from time to time his family were roman catholic and they went to mass that morning he said he didn't want to go he wasn't interested and so he just watched tv instead and while watching this silly nativity tv show he became overwhelmed with a true sense of his own guilt and shame And he was forced out of the house and just went for a walk. He almost couldn't get this out of his head, his guilt and shame, that he needs a solution. And that there was something in what he just saw in the nativity scene that told him he needed what was on offer. By the time he entered his house, walking home, he was a Christian. And he'd given his life to the Jesus, the God of that Jesus he'd seen through that foggy message of the animation. Christ can save without us, friends, but he calls his church to be bold, unashamed, clear witnesses to the world, that we not be wishy-washy and foggy and afraid of men, but to be as clear as his spirit of boldness permits. When it comes to God, who surrenders wins, who fights loses. Well, let's pray.